You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hello, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Today I'm talking about lice and scabies. So get ready to get itchy with my guest, Dr. Albert Yan, a pediatric dermatologist also at CHOP. Welcome, Dr. Yan. Thank you, Katie. I'd suggest we give the audience a disclosure here as there is neuroscience research to suggest that people listening to talks about itchy subjects are observed to itch and scratch more than controls who are listening to talks about non-itchy subjects. So if you're on your commute listening along, don't get too distracted. (laughs) I love that there's actually science to support that. (laughs) So let's start with the epidemiology of lice. I've heard that lice prefer clean hair or that they don't like curly hair. So are there certain types of hair that lice like more or less? Well, I could say that this question bugs me a little bit. (laughs) But to be fair, I'm not sure I would describe lice as having a preference for clean hair so much as untreated hair. For lice to attach and infest the head, The louse has to be able to use its pincers to grasp and move itself along the hair shaft. So the use of hair products like hair greases or pomades, we presume make the hair less hospitable. As you can imagine, that head lice trying to navigate goopy product-treated hair would have more difficulty. Mm. Lice in the U.S. are thought to have pincers that are especially well adapted to the caliber of pediatric hair as well as some adolescent and adult hair, which is why we tend to see this mostly as a problem of younger school-aged kids and sometimes their family members because they've adapted to that hair caliber. But it's also suspected that head lice are better able to crawl along straight Caucasian hair. Mm. That's not to say that children with skin of color are never affected, but that proportionally it's just less common. And I've had my fair share of treating kids who are Hispanic or Asian, um, but a lot fewer who are African-American. And that's probably a combination of the physical limitations of the louse itself attaching and navigating the hair, as well as hair care practices involving the use of hair products. And it's interesting to note that there are documented clusters of head lice on the African continent, and they affect curly hair in patients with skin of color. So it really depends on your perspective as to whether we're lucky we're stuck with the head lice that we have here. Hmm. So there's some regional variation, which is interesting too. Definitely. We know that lice don't fly or jump and they require direct contact. So how are kids typically getting lice? Well, thank goodness head lice don't fly or jump. Transmission is typically from direct head-to-head or hair-to-hair contact. So you can imagine younger kids in preschool or kindergarten lying down together for naps, kids having close conversations with each other, and the hair coming into contact can allow for transmission. And because lice require 
hair-to-hair contact, you can imagine why those with longer hair are at greater risk for picking up and transmitting head lice. And that's why I keep encouraging my daughters to have shorter hairstyles. <laughs> Fomites like pillowcases and hats and clothing, while they're possible sources of transmission, they're really only sources if they've been in close contact with someone infested with head lice soon before they come into contact with those fomites. Head lice need certain environmental conditions, temperature and humidity to flourish, and they typically need a blood meal at least every 24 hours so they don't survive for long off of the human body. Hmm. And I'm guessing actually with virtual learning and social distancing, kids have largely been able to stay ahead of the problem (laughs) and have been seeing a lot less head lice during the pandemic. That's a great point, that the pandemic might have helped some of this. Now, in clinic, I see many patients who present with a history of itching when they have lice, and we might actually even see live lice or nits on our exam. But sometimes the symptoms can be more subtle, and the nits can look a lot like dandruff. So any tips on how to identify nits or lice in the clinic? Uh, Those are really great points. You know, the hallmark of the child with head lice when they come into clinic is they're usually scratching their heads, especially the backs of their heads. And this is where, you know, you put on your gloves, you get a bright light to look for the live lice or look for nits. And lice are especially fast moving, so you have to be quick. They tend to be a little photophobic, so they tend to stay away from bright lights. But that's the best way to see them when you're on the lookout for them. Nits are easier to find, and to tell the difference between nits and dandruff, there are a few handy tips. Dandruff, which is basically just stratum corneum or skin scale, or hair casts, which are oftentimes mistaken for nits, can be moved relatively easily on the hair shaft. You know, you take your gloved fingers and you just kind of hold it and you move it, and it is easy to remove. Nits, by contrast, are cemented onto the hair shaft. There's this really strong glue, and it's difficult to remove without some reasonable effort. Some of the interesting things are that if nits are within about a centimeter or two of the scalp, they are probably true nits or unhatched eggs. But if they're more than an inch away from the scalp base, they're likely already hatched, and they're now empty egg casings. Is that because it takes that long for them to hatch, that the hair is growing, or is that just that they migrate after they've been hatched? They're usually, the louse lays the egg and attaches them to the base of the hair. And as the hair is growing at about a centimeter per month, you're going to see the nits kind of look like they're moving farther and farther away from the scalp. So it's just a function of when they're laid and then they hatch within that time frame. And beyond that distance, they've already kind of hatched once they've grown that far. Very interesting. So let's shift to treatment. In terms of treatment, it's really important to comb out all of the nits. But in addition, pediculicides like permethrin can be used. So how should we approach treatment for the greatest success? Combing out nits is a little controversial, and I don't want to nitpick. But, you know, when you treat with an ovicidal agent, you don't typically have to comb all the nits out as it's no longer an active infestation. That being said, there's a stigma attached to having lice. And people who are maybe inexperienced looking at hair at school or camp and seeing 
even empty knit casings may not be able to tell whether it's an active or an inactive infestation. Mm -hmm. So for those reasons, I do recommend combing the knits out, and I would do it using an effective lice comb. These are combs that are specially designed. They have stiff tines that are close to one another. And I personally like the metal ones better because I just find them easier to use and more effective. Mm -hmm. But people oftentimes will find that the plastic ones can work too. But as a tip, I always put on a hair conditioner or Cetaphil liquid cleanser to lubricate the hair, which makes it a lot easier to comb through. And it's very satisfying to get out the leftover egg casings. And especially if you find any active head lice, you can kind of comb those out too to see if you still have an active infestation. And then what about the medical treatments for it? Well, on the subject of lice treatments, traditional agents like permethrin rinses or synthetic pyrethroids like Nix and RID can still be effective in some communities. And you typically you know, have the families wet the hair, pat it dry, apply the products, and leave them on for about 10 minutes, and just rinse them out with water. And then you repeat this about a week later. And I've heard more and more about resistance in lice treatment. So how big of an issue is this? And would it impact my approach in what I start treating with? Well, that's an excellent question. Studies have suggested for a while that lice resistance is a real phenomenon and is pretty widespread. There have been several studies that have come out in the entomology literature, as well as in the pediatric literature and derm literature, looking specifically at the issue of knockdown resistance and its prevalence. And it's pretty much everywhere. Now, whether this translates into clinical failure is yet to be determined. You know, there are increasing numbers of people who are starting to say that conventional agents like permethrin and pyrethroids make lousy choices as first-line agents. But I'd say some families do still find benefit from trying these first, especially in communities where you're not seeing clinical resistance. But pediatricians should have a low threshold for moving on to other prescription agents like spinosad, which is um, also known as natroba, which is both it kills the lice or pediculicidal as well as ovicidal. There's also the recently approved abimetapyr lotion, which is metalloproteinase inhibitor, which is fairly effective as well and easy to use. And then topical ivermectin has also recently gone OTC. So mm. although I've found that difficult to obtain in local pharmacies, it's been approved by the FDA for over-the-counter use, and it's also quite effective. And in occasional resistant cases, I'll also use oral ivermectin off-label. But you, there are a number of different alternatives for cases that are not responsive to traditional OTC products. Now, we talked about how lice is spread. And so children with lice should not be excluded from school. But what about household contacts? Should we also be treating them? Well, when I take the time to look, I often find other family members are also infested. They may not be as symptomatic, particularly the adults in the household. So to get ahead of the game, I generally treat household contacts as well. Great. Let's shift gears a little bit to scabies. Similar to lice, scabies is transmitted through direct contact. Are there certain risk factors in getting scabies? 
Well, scabies is one of these things that requires close contact with people who have scabies. So you'll typically see this in people living in close quarters, um, extended care facilities, shelters, nursing homes, prisons. So anywhere where there are a large number of people in close quarters Mm -hmm. for extended periods of time. Summer camp, perhaps, for some of our pediatric patients? Yes, that would be a consideration. (laughs) And classic scabies is characterized by small, erythematous, often excoriated papules and pruritus. What locations of the body are the most common for this rash? Great description of scabies findings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the best places to look for these erythematous papules and sometimes vesicles and sometimes burrows are usually, this is kind of a geographic disease. You want to kind of look at certain places. So look distal to elbows and knees, especially in web spaces between the fingers and toes, but other areas that you might be less likely to think about, like creases of the palms, Mm -hmm. areas where the skin gets folded over, like the wrists, Lesions are especially common in warmer areas of the body as well, like the groin, the genital areas, below the breasts. And sometimes lesions, if they've been around for a while, initiate a hypersensitivity reaction and get inflamed and become more nodular, Mm. giving you that kind of nodular scabies look. And I'll usually see that more in the axillae, groin, and also on the genital areas. Mm. Where you don't usually see it is on the face or scalp, except in infants. So it's a geographic diagnosis as much as a uh, morphology diagnosis. And how is crusted scabies, which often occurs in immunocompromised individuals, different than what we typically see? Good question. So people who get crusted scabies usually have extensive, scaly, crusted areas. And sometimes if you look closely, you, you might even imagine some of the scale actually moving in heavily infested patients. These are usually patients who are immunocompromised or debilitated and don't have the ability to scratch regularly because scratching by itself can damage or kill the occasional mite, but no scratching at all allows them to really proliferate. And in people without normal immune system function, they can become numerous. And people who get crusted scabies have you know, hundreds or thousands of lesions of mites, that is. And in primary care, we can't do a scabies prep or dermoscopy. So how do we make the diagnosis? Well, while I find it mighty satisfying to see mites under the microscope, Mm -hmm. the scrapings are really only positive about 50% of the time. So a lot of the times, even in my clinic, we're treating clinically. And so, you know, I'd go back to the clinical exam, looking for those distal lesions and the web spaces and intertriginous areas and treat if your clinical suspicion is high. Mm -hmm. That being said, if you're seeing someone who looks like they have scabies but aren't clearing as expected with your treatments, you've got to broaden your differential diagnosis and think about other scenarios. You know, certainly the mites may be successfully treated and may be dead. And now you're dealing with a post-scabies hypersensitivity reaction, like a post-scabetic pustulosis or nodular scabies. And then you would treat those findings with topical anti-inflammatories like topical steroid and antihistamines. You also have to think about other conditions that can mimic scabies, like acropustulosis of infancy, which usually are pustules and acrolocations. They don't always show up in web spaces per se, but they're intensely itchy. 
and especially affect kids with skin of color. There's also eosinophilic pustulosis, which is also very itchy, and that can be a little more widespread, but can be mistaken for scabies. And the nodular lesions and some of the groin lesions and presentations of histiocytosis should also be considered on your differential if you're dealing with a highly resistant case. So you mentioned treatment, and the first-line treatment that I usually use is also permethrin, as we discussed for lice. But how is treatment of scabies different than lice? Well, whereas we're seeing a lot more pediculicide resistance with head lice, permethrin remains really effective with little resistance for scabies. So in most cases, if you're treating scabies with permethrin, you're still going to see really good effectiveness if the patients follow your treatment correctly, which means for most patients, that means putting it on from behind the ears all the way down the body and especially getting those intertriginous areas. For infants, you do have to treat the scalp and the face, but you apply it wait about a week to 10 days, and then reapply to make sure that any hatched eggs are taken care of. And it's still a very effective treatment. Occasionally, I'll see some resistant cases that, or treatment failures because they're unable to follow those regimens. And then we'll consider something like off-label oral ivermectin, which is the 200 micrograms per kilo per dose, and do that as two doses about a week to 10 days apart. And you mentioned that sometimes the pruritus may take longer to resolve. So what's the best way to manage the kids who are still itchy, even though we think maybe the treatment of the scabies was effective? Great point. I mean, this is something that's probably the biggest deal for families is, you know, they're in because they're itchy and you treat them and it's going to take about a week to two weeks or sometimes even longer for that itch to resolve. So I'll usually have them do their first scabies treatment with permethrin, and then after they wash it off, you know, this is an overnight treatment, and it's a whole family event because we tell them it's a permethrin party. They all do it all mm -hmm. at once, wash it off in the morning. After that first treatment, they can start using their topical steroid, like triamcinolone or fluocinolone, and I'll have them apply that for the itchy areas on the body once or twice a day for one or two weeks to kind of get them through. And then they take a break on the day they do their follow-up second treatment a week later, but then continue the topical steroid for a week or two. And this uh, permethrin party that you're talking about, what other environmental measures should they take to prevent spread in the household if it hasn't gone to the other members? What can they do to prevent that spread? I think what's probably most important is even if the close contacts in the family are not symptomatic, that everybody in the household be treated. Because many patients take up to about three weeks after their initial exposure to show clinical signs of scabies infestation. And I have many conversations with parents who wonder why they have to be treated when they're not symptomatic at all, mm -hmm. despite their child being significantly infested. So I think it's really important to treat all the close contacts. And then you can certainly address the potential fomites. You know, you wash and dry the clothing that's been recently worn. If they have other fomites that can't be washed, like stuffed animals, for instance, you can bag them up for two weeks and keep them in a plastic bag and then take them out after that. 
if there's a really important stuffed animal that the child really wants, you can put it in a freezer overnight, and that is reasonably effective as well. But I think it's just easier for many families to just bag everything up for a couple of weeks. Well, thank you for that review of lice and scabies. We tend to think of these conditions as generally benign diagnoses, but do you see complications from either of these infections? Well, you're exactly right. Most of the time, head lice and scabies are generally benign diagnoses. The main issue for some of the kids is secondary infection Mm -hmm. with staph or rarely strep. So I think it's important to be on the lookout for signs of secondary infection in kids who are doing a ton of scratching. We see licensed gabies all the time in primary care, and I think you've given us a lot of tips to make us feel even more confident in managing these conditions. But when should we consider a referral to dermatology for these diagnoses? You know, I think in primary care, if you suspect head license scabies, I think it's very appropriate for you to do the initial treatment. And I would recommend referring for, number one, cases that don't respond to treatment as expected, because there is a differential diagnosis for other things. Cases that keep recurring despite treatment and temporary responses as it can be one of these other things we talked about, acropustulosis and eosinophilic pustulosis, for instance, tend to be cyclical and episodic. So anywhere along those lines where you're thinking that things aren't responding as expected, we're more than happy to have you refer those. Great. Thank you so much for teaching us more on this topic and for providing care to our patients at CHOP. We're lucky to have you all helping us with all of these itchy cases today. So thank you very much. Always happy to help. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 